0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled, Don't Miss the Rare When Diagnosing and Treating Autoimmune Hemolytic Anemia, Focus on CAD. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerviewcom forward slash mvg860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Maury Gertz from Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome to this educational activity on cold agglutinin disease. Cold agglutinin disease is a rare form of autoimmune hemolytic anemia in which cold agglutinins cause clinical symptoms that is related to the agglutination clumping of red blood cells. Incidence is not well understood, but it may affect 1 to 20 in 1 million people globally, and it crosses both genders and all ethnicities. Cold agglutinins are antibodies that recognize antigens on the red blood cell surface at temperatures below normal core body temperature. Agglutinating autoantibodies with an optimum temperature of 3 to 4 degrees centigrade lead to agglutination of the red cells and subsequent extravascular hemolysis resulting in symptomatic anemia. Cold agglutinins can be seen as part of primary cold agglutinin disease where there's a Monoclonal IgM protein produced by a clonal population of cells in the marrow, or secondary as a post infectious phenomenon or an autoimmune phenomenon where polyclonal IgM ends up binding to the red cell surface and leading to agglutination. There are rare instances of IgG or IgA cold agglutinin disease, but the overwhelming majority are IgM in origin. Agglutination of red cells leading to anemia can also be associated with acrocyanosis and livid reticularis. These clinical phenomena occur in areas where temperature is below core body temperature. Agglutination of red cells in small blood vessels causes a variety of symptoms that can range from relatively mild to severe pain. Cold agglutinin disease also has an in Increased risk of venous thromboembolism, which needs to be considered as part of the major morbidity associated with the disease. Two very large cohorts have been reported. One, the STRIDE cohort from Stanford University, reported that of 29 cold agglutinin disease patients, five suffered a thrombotic event during follow up from 2008 to 2016. Moreover, These thrombotic events were quite unusual in that three had a portal vein thrombosis and two had acute venous embolism and thrombosis of deep vessels. The Optum cohort found 395 thromboembolic events in 255 cold agglutinin disease patients, constituting 31.3% of identified patients. This was compared to a control group. Where the incidence of thromboembolism was 1,605 or 20.2% of patients. The odds of having a thrombotic event was 1.85 times higher in colder gluten disease patients during the study period. In addition, these patients developed severe anemia, relapsing and remitting despite multiple therapeutic interventions. The diagnosis of cold agglutinin disease is not a simple one but the most common tests would be the CBC which would show evidence of hemolysis, a reduced hemoglobin, elevation of the reticulocyte count, elevation of LDH, indirect hyperbilirubinemia and as is typical for other extravascular hemolysis low haptoglobin. All patients with cold agglutinin disease will have a positive direct antiglobulin test, or Coombs test. This is essentially always present, and monospecific Coombs testing will show complement on the red cell surface, as opposed to warm hemolytic anemia where immunoglobulin G is found on the surface. A cold agglutinin titer is generally greater than 1 to 64 when conducted at 4 degrees centigrade. And the titer is determined by simple dilutions of the patient's serum and its ability diluted to agglutinate normal red cells. There's also thermal amplitude, not done in many laboratories, but it is the ability of the patient's serum to agglutinate red cells over a broad range of temperatures. The higher the thermal amplitude, the more severe the disease is. The most clinically significant cold agglutinins have a thermal amplitude that exceeds 28 degrees centigrade. When you find a patient who has a positive complement Coombs test and has evidence of active hemolytic anemia, screening for an underlying disorder is important. In older adults, it's almost always associated with a monoclonal IgM protein in the serum And you will find clonal lymphoplasmocytic cells in the bone marrow, which may or may not reach the threshold to call it Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. Most patients will require bone marrow and CT imaging for evidence of lymphadenopathy identifying lymphoma present. Most of these patients also have suppression of serum complement levels since it's consumed from the serum binding to the red cells. Cold-induced symptoms in acral areas are extremely common. Acrocyanosis, the discoloring of the skin, purplish tone in the fingertips, toes, nose, and ears. Livido reticularis, where the sludging of red cells and superficial vessels consuming oxygen and causing darkening, making the extremities mottled and purplish in a kind of variegated net-like pattern with very distinct borders, which is completely reversible on rewarming. Painful Raynaud's phenomenon is frequently seen, and occasionally ulceration and necrosis can be seen, but this is quite uncommon. And patients often will report subjective pain on swallowing cold food or liquids. Supportive care for cold agglutinin disease is important as well because of this doubling In the instance of venous thromboembolism, consideration needs to be given that hospitalized patients, which is common because of the severity of the anemia, get some type of thromboprophylaxis. And patients who have very active hemolysis have a higher risk of developing these clots, and so consideration is required. Since red cells are turning over at a very fast rate, folic acid used in the production of Red cell DNA is important to ensure that patients don't develop deficiency. And patients do need to avoid cold. It depends on the specific patient's phenotype, but some patients need to wear protection on their hands in the form of gloves when removing items from a refrigerator and sometimes develop pain when they swallow cold beverages. Rapid temperature change is best avoided. And some patients need thermal protection by extra layers of clothing. Patients undergoing surgical procedures may need a blood warmer if they're undergoing something extracorporeal, such as coronary artery bypass, to ensure that the red cells don't agglutinate during the procedure. There's been a lot of exploration in trying to treat cold agglutinin disease by blocking complement. because. IgM binds to the red cell surface, and IgM is a complement-fixing antibody. This attaches C3 to the red cell surface, and specialized receptors exist in the liver, the spleen, the lymph nodes, and the lungs that will bind complement-coated red cells and remove them from the circulation. So, there have been a number of trials trying to block complement activation, so that C3 is no longer available for binding to the red cells and leading to hemolysis. Although many treatments that have been used to target the immunoglobulin M protein have been used over the years, including rituximab, bendamustine, ibrutinib, bortezomib. Recently, it's been demonstrated that targeting complement and blocking complement activation So, C3 is not available for binding to the red cell has become increasingly important. Sutimlamab is an FDA-approved monoclonal antibody that will target at C1S the first step in the classical pathway. So, C3 doesn't become activated. Pegsetical plan, which is an approved treatment for paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, targets C3, an intermediate step in the classical pathway and is currently undergoing clinical trials. Echoluzumab, approved treatment for paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinemia. Target C5, which is the last step of the classical pathway, has been evaluated as treatment, but it does not carry an indication for this use. So just in terms of your practice and watching out, it's important that anytime you see a patient with autoimmune hemolytic anemia, That you do analysis to determine if it's cold hemolytic anemia, complement-coated red cells, or warm hemolytic anemia, the more common form, with immunoglobulin on the red cells, but keeping in mind that patients can be mixed, where they can have immunoglobulin and complement on the red cell. The triggers of cold agglutin disease are not well understood, but rapid changes in temperature can produce symptoms. This is a woman who actually presents with fever, weakness, and confusion, and her comorbidities are substantial, hypertension, coronary artery disease, prior pulmonary embolus, type 2 diabetes, osteoporosis, polyneuropathy, depression. So this is a woman who has major comorbidities. Historically, there's been limited evidence to guide treatment decisions in cold agglutinin disease. As always, enrollment in a clinical trial is a first-line option for symptomatic patients with primary cold gluten disease, and the patient we're discussing actually had been enrolled enrolled in a phase one trial of sutimlamab and responded well to it. But when the trial ended, she discontinued sutimlamab, resumed therapy later in an open label extension after she became increasingly anemic. Now, the hospitalization that we're talking about now is her first hospitalization since the reinitiation of sutimlumab. And when we look at her laboratory values at presentation, sutimlumab was restarted 47 weeks after it was discontinued. And when she presented, she had a bilirubin of 17 milligrams per deciliter, a neutrophil count of 10,000. And both urine and blood cultures were positive for E. coli. And this, of course, was the presumed trigger for the relapse of her autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Condensit is the first randomized clinical trial in cold and and disease. This was limited to 42 patients with a solid diagnosis, anemia, but no recent red cell transfusions. Sutimlamab so, was administered at a fixed dose. milligrams based on weight for patients who are lower weight, 7.5 milligrams for patients at higher weight, and it was given on day zero, day seven, and every two weeks for a total of 26 weeks. 73% of patients on sutimlumab met the primary composite endpoint of a rise in hemoglobin in the absence of transfusion or other therapy. Laboratory measures of classical complement pathway activation improved within a week with normalization of hemoglobin in three weeks. Cold agglutinin disease symptoms were reduced 50% from baseline and fatigue scores improved. The investigator conclusions from the trial were that sutimlamab reduced hemolysis, anemia, and fatigue symptoms in patients with cold agglutinin disease that were not transfusion-dependent. The drug was well-tolerated with adverse events consistent with an older, medically complex patient population. The correct answer is continuing sutimlamab at the original dose, the full dose. Her urinary tract infection was treated with parenteral antibiotics, in this case amoxicillin clavulanic acid, initially parenterally and then orally. She was discharged nine days later. And she was given prophylactic trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. After the resumption of the sutimlamab, her hemoglobin rose to 13 grams per deciliter and her neutrophil count after the infection resolved normalized and her bilirubin, which was massively elevated, fell back into the normal range. I'd like to discuss a 68-year-old woman with multiple comorbid conditions who is generally unwell but is not responding to therapy. This patient previously was treated with rituximab, but still had anemia requiring red cell transfusions. When this patient presented, her hemoglobin was 6.9. The cold agglutinin titer was 1 to 6,000. Her IgM level was 5 grams per liter European units. In the U.S., it would be 0.5 grams per deciliter. And there were clonal plasma cells, lymphoplasmacytic cells in the bone marrow with a capital M, the ratio of 8.4. Rituximab has been used for nearly 20 years in the treatment of cold agglutinin disease. In a prospective single-arm multicenter trial, 27 patients with cold agglutinin disease and symptomatic hemolysis received four doses of rituximab. The complete response rate was 3%, but most importantly, the partial response rate, a rise in hemoglobin of 2 grams or greater, occurred in only 51%, and 46% of patients had no response whatsoever. In addition, response duration was median of 11 months. Retreatment with rituximab, sometimes with the addition of alpha interferon, improved the response rate which demonstrated rituximab has some effectiveness and reasonably well-tolerated for cold agglutinin disease and was previously the standard of care. But it's important to remember that the response rate is 54% in total. This patient received perennial rituximab, standard dose, 375 per meter squared, four doses, 1, 8, 15, and 22. The patient had typical rituximab-related adverse events. Transient neutropenia, fever, and grade one infection. But after three months of rituximab therapy, there was no hemoglobin response. The patient was offered interferon therapy but declined. And so, in patients with cold agglutinin disease that are rituximab failures, we need to consider potential second line therapy. And a consensus statement published in Blood Reviews in 2020 and in a How I Treat article in Blood by Berenson, potential choices for second-line therapy included ecoluzumab, ibrutinib, rituximab bendamustine, and clinical trials. However, these consensus statements were published before sutimlamab was approved. I think this would be an appropriate situation after a first-line failure of rituximab to consider sutimlamab, and I'd like to review the cardinal study published in 2021 in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was prospective single-arm multi-center, 24 patients with confirmed cold agglutinin disease. Again, sutimlumab was given in two doses at either 6.5 or 7.5 milligrams based on weight on day zero, day seven, and then every two weeks for a total of 26 weeks. These patients were transfusion-dependent. 54% met the composite primary endpoint of a hemoglobin increase of greater than two grams, no transfusions, and no other treatment. 71% of the patients achieved transfusion independency from week five to the end of therapy. Clinically meaningful reductions in fatigue were observed by week one and were maintained throughout the study and bilirubin normalized by week three. 29% had greater than one serious adverse event, but none of them were attributed to Sutimloman. The drug rapidly halts hemolysis, raises hemoglobin, and reduces fatigue, and these favorable effects were maintained for at least one full year, despite the fact that treatment ended at 26 weeks. We're going to discuss a healthy 54-year-old woman who's untreated. She presents with brain fog, a four-month history of anemia. Her hemoglobin is 6.2 grams per deciliter. Four times normal at 647. Bilirubin elevated to 3.92 milligrams per deciliter. Haptoglobin unmeasurable. Reticulocytes absolute elevated to 118,000 per microliter. In IgM kappa found in the serum by immunofixation, 0.33 grams per deciliter. Coombs test strongly positive and complement Coombs C3. Strongly positive, C4 not detectable in the serum. C3 reduced to 0.54 grams per liter. This is a pretty classical manifestation of cold agglutinin disease in an adult. Her bone marrow biopsy showed lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma associated with the cold agglutinin disease. So very very typical presentation. When you look, however, at the overall findings in the Nordic trial. achieved a complete response, and 31% had a partial response, increasing the hemoglobin by 2 grams, a decline in serum IgM level, and clinical improvement. But 29% had no response, and as expected with bendamustine, 33% had grade 3 to 4 neutropenia, and 29% required dose reduction. Also, among responders, response duration was 32 months median. So bendamustine rituximab is highly effective and is reasonably safe and is a legitimate first-line consideration for patients with cold agglutinin disease that requires therapy. And observational data suggests that sustained remission is possible in responders with a long-term in responders of 70% still responding at 84 months. She was enrolled in the Nordic bendamustine rituximab trial. She received four cycles of bendamustine, 90 milligrams per meter squared on days one and two, identical to CLL dosing, and received rituximab 375 milligrams per meter squared on day one of each four-week cycle. The patient developed grade 2, 3 neutropenia after each cycle, but no fever, no infection. Hemoglobin began rising after the second cycle she became transfusion independent. So after the completion of her rituximab and bendamustine, she was well. Her hemoglobin was 13.8 grams per deciliter. Markers of hemolysis were all normal, and the monoclonal IgM was no longer present, the hematologic complete response. And at six years post-therapy, well, no anemia, no hemolysis, no relapse. So clearly, in this instance, chemoimmunotherapy was a highly effective appropriate intervention. So let's talk about a 54-year-old woman who's healthy and asymptomatic. This patient comes to you for a second opinion. She has a 17-year history of mild anemia. A local oncologist did a bone marrow and found lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma and IgM monoclonal protein and diagnosed the patient as having Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Chemotherapy was recommended. Her hemoglobin was 10.2, indirect bilirubin was 1.3 milligram per deciliter, reticulocyte count 3% IgM, 1,330 milligram per deciliter. Coombs test was 2 plus positive, cold agglutinin titer was 1 to 131,000, and the bone marrow showed red cell hyperplasia with nodular and interstitial infiltration with lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. This patient has Waldenström macroglobulinemia by definition, with interstitial infiltrates of lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, but the primary manifestation of it is cold agglutinin disease because the extent of infiltration of the Waldenstroms would not be sufficient to produce anemia. Anemia in Waldenstroms requires 40, 60, 70 percent infiltration with lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. So, although the patient fulfills criteria for Waldenstrom, the anemia is due to cold agglutinin hemolysis. But this patient has compensated anemia and is not symptomatic with a hemoglobin of over 10, and I do not believe treatment for this patient would be appropriate and this patient should be observed. When you look at the distribution of hemoglobin levels in patients with cold agglutinin disease, Many patients have completely compensated hemolysis without anemia. In fact, in a cohort of 232 patients with cold agglutinin disease, the hemoglobin was above the lower limit of normal in 12%. The anemia, like our patient, was between 10 grams and the lower limit of normal in 24%. And in my opinion, this 36% shouldn't be treated. Moderate anemia, 8 to 10 grams in 37%. That depends on the patient's comorbidities, but most of these patients, I think, should be treated. And then severe anemia hemoglobin, less than 8 grams in 27%. All of these patients will have a monoclonal IgM protein in the serum, usually about a half gram per deciliter, and other markers of hemolysis, hyperbilirubinemia elevated of LDH. And reticulocyte counts, but you can get episodic hemolysis in cold agglutinin disease. A particularly common trigger is an infection, just as the patient we discussed earlier with E. coli in the urine and in the blood, triggering a severe flare for hemolysis. And so, acute illnesses and infections need to be screened in patients. So this patient was observed, and after 22 months of observation. The patient developed a simple acute viral bronchitis. And when the upper respiratory infection developed, everything decompensated. Hemoglobin fell to 6.5 grams per deciliter. The total bilirubin rose to 2.5. The LDH rose to 339. The reticulocyte count, 6%. What actually happened to this patient, and this was some years ago, was the patient first received dexamethasone and failed completely the hemoglobin didn't improve and the patient developed steroid related diabetes the patient subsequently received four doses of rituximab and two months later the hemoglobin normalized at 12.2 however hemolysis persisted compensated no measurable haptoglobin cold agglutinin titer 1 to 65000 a persistently positive coombs test and an igm level of grams per deciliter. In those days, complement blockade was not available. I believe today, one would have to consider, particularly for a severe flare of anemia, hemoglobin less than six, uh, emergency intervention with either rituximab or occasionally plasma exchange will be effective, or offering participation in a clinical trial would be a very effective treatment. Echoluzumab has been studied in gluten disease. It was actually the first prospective trial of complement inhibition by echoluzumab in gluten disease. 13 patients were enrolled with confirmed gluten disease, and an LDH, that was twice normal. This was a three-phase study, a pre-treatment two-week screening phase to confirm the anemia. And during this time, patients received meningitis vaccination, as is required for virtually all complement blockade therapy, and then a 26-week treatment phase, and then an eight-week washout phase. Eculizumab was given standard dose 600 milligrams weekly for four weeks and then 900 milligrams every other week. The trial showed a significant reduction in LDH from 572 to 334. A significant improvement in hemoglobin, median 9.35 to 10.15 gram per deciliter. 13 adverse events in four patients were possibly treatment-related, and no meningococcal infections were seen. Eculizumab reduced hemolysis and transfusion dependency in the majority of patients, but had no impact on cold-induced circulatory symptoms. This drug is not FDA-approved for the indication of cold-agglutinin disease. So, let me just summarize for you. Cold agglutinin disease is an autoimmune hemolytic anemia. It is always Coombs positive. But the monospecific Coombs test can be positive for complement alone or mixed complement and immunoglobulin G. Almost all patients have a monoclonal IgM protein in the serum, which is the source of complement fixation to the red cell surface. A full third of patients really do not require treatment because they have compensated hemolysis. And so monitoring is a valid management strategy. Therapies include rituximab, which has been shown to be effective, rituximab and bendamusti. But with the recent introduction of complement blockade, eliminating activation of complement can result in very rapid and sustained normalization of the hemoglobin level. Dexamethasone has been used for this, but by and large, corticosteroids are not effective in the treatment of cold agglutinin disease, unlike warm hemolytic anemia, where it's really the mainstay of therapy. International consensus guidelines for the emergency treatment of cold agglutinin disease have recommended ecoluzumab or plasma exchange, but realistically, these were all made before the introduction. Of significantly effective blockers of C1. I'd like to thank you very much for your attention during this presentation, and again, thank you very much. This activity is certified by PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the Cold Agglutinin Disease Foundation, Incorporated. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerreview.com forward slash MVG 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi.